Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nothing is Real, a Beatles podcast, is powered by Acast. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Today, we are going to look at just one song, the 1968 song Revolution, which is a track that spins off in a couple of different directions as it takes shape throughout the summer of 1968. And it's an interesting one, isn't it, Stephen? It kind of comes at a busy time professionally for them. It is. They've they've come back from uh, their trip to India. Uh, they're launching Apple. Um, Paul and John have had their May press conference uh, in, in America uh, announcing that. I think the public are interested to see what's happening. This this form of Western communism that they're uh, they're touting. They're starting to solicit. Uh, uh, you know contributions and tapes and scripts and uh, for, from various people and uh, plus they have to get round to the business of recording the new album. Yeah, they've 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 had a number one while they've been in India with Lady Madonna and people are still wanting them to to get back into the studio and so there's a couple of things we need to think about when we think about the song Revolution and probably the first thing to to, to look at and we are we should state for the record we are not historians in the broadest sense but there is a no. context of activity in 1968 there's a, an environment that this song is being written in and that it comes out to that is uh, i suppose not unlike some of the chaotic times that we're seeing in 2020 but it's it, people are waiting for a statement and so there's a lot in 68 that people need to keep in the back of their mind isn't there there is uh, and i mean it's it's perhaps difficult at this Remove from 1968 to appreciate just how seriously uh, the, the the sort of fear was of you know insurrection, rebellion, revolution. That that the, the, there was a sense of of that the order, the existing order, was under threat. And um, you know you have America embroiled in the war in Vietnam in January. Uh, the Viet Cong had launched the Tet Offensive, which was a sort of pushback. Uh, against American forces. And I think this is the point at which certainly the American government and the American people start to think we are not going to win this war. This war is not capable of being won. Uh, in in February 68, uh, the government in the States announced 543 US soldiers had been killed in a single week, which was the highest death toll. Um, the war, it's an election year and the war is the big issue. Um yeah, and and the you know the American election. I mean, you know the 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 song revolution you know gets 
put down in May and, and June. But, you know, 1968 as a whole, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening on the far side of that as well. There's political assassinations. There's the withdrawal of Lyndon Bain Johnson, uh, who doesn't seek re-election in the American presidential race. There's a chaotic uh, Democratic National Convention uh, that year. There's the, the Prague Spring out in Eastern Europe. Uh, there's, it, it's, you know, it, it's a very volatile it's, time it is it's a very tumultuous time and you you've got to remember that this this song was written in india it's recorded in may june so you're coming right in the middle of um in april martin luther king has been assassinated in may i suppose the big event right across may is the uh, student risings in paris it's maybe incorrect to say it's a student rising i mean it's a it, it, it's social upheaval yeah. uh in france i mean at one point the government uh, de Gaulle has fled at one point to Germany briefly. Uh, the government is about to fall. Um, uh, so all of this is going on around the time is that, that, that the song is being recorded. And then, as you say, in the back end of the year, when this song comes out um, as a B-side of Hey Jude and on the album, those events are still continuing. As you say, the, the, in August, the Chicago Democratic Convention I suppose all of that leads up to Nixon winning the election uh, in, in at the beginning of November. Yeah. So so it plays out the record the, the sort of the composition, the recording, the release, and the public reception is playing out against this uh, this this background across the whole year. And as you say, you, you know everything the Beatles did at that point is 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 being paid attention, and it's uh, are they going to comment what? People are waiting, as you say, they're waiting for a statement. Yeah, and certainly there's, you know, there's a bit of a, you know, we are post-60s people, really. So we've always looked at the 60s through a rear view mirror. And it, mm. it kind of gets posted as this sort of, you know, oh, there's a there's a man looking at a military jacket in Carnaby Street type yes. thing. You know? yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was swinging and it was fantastic. But I think, you know, the... The 60s in the United States meant something very different to the 60s in London, and London meant something very different to the rest of the UK. Um, but it's interesting how globally there's a lot of unrest in 68, that it, it it all kind of tips over. And it's something that isn't as well known as the kind of the jolly swinging part of the 60s, you, you could say sometimes. No, I think that's right. And I, I think we touched on this on a, an episode last season, which is this this shift from swinging London yeah. uh, to uh, to America, and particularly the West Coast. And, and, and that's a much more, um, it, you know, it's much more aggressive music. It, it, it's the music of protest. It's hard rock. Um, and yes, I, I think London, you know, we're not, the UK is not directly involved in the war in Vietnam. Uh, I suppose the big event in 68 in London is the 100,000 people marching uh, on the American embassy, Grosvenor Square, in March. Yeah. But that that is a, a sort of statement of solidarity with protests in America. But then everyone the next day can get up and go go about their business and go back to college and yeah. go back to their job. And so so America is really the center of of, of that protest movement. And in Europe, it's really France is the protest. But these, you say, these are these these protests are breaking out all across the Western world. And what's different then to now is, at that point, the pop culture. There was this notion of, oh, actually, there's this voice of a generation thing that certain people have, and people are looking to see, you know, well, you know, what will Dylan say? What will the Beatles say? What will X, Y, and Z say? And 
you talk about the uh, the March 1968 protest at the American Embassy in London, which had 100,000 mm. protesters. But that maybe should let us segue into somebody else who was a voice of the generation at the time and who was involved or who was at those protests, which was Mick Jagger. Yes. And we might talk yes. a little bit about the Stones and, and Street Fighting Man, because Jagger was there in March 68, and that kind of influenced him, didn't it? Yes. Um, I, I, I'm always quite skeptical about Jagger. You know, he's he's a bit of a chameleon and he 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 plays, he sort of skirts around, uh, you know, plays with fire, the, the sort of the danger of, of, of student demonstration. There's the politics. He still does this today. He sort of dips in and out of political statements with lyrics that he writes. But um, certainly uh, the, the descriptions of him there are, you know, that he was linking arms with the students and then suddenly he is recognized and he becomes the focus and the press are trying to get a, an interview with him. He's on camera and he sort of realizes that his fame isn't, uh, you know, it's not going to allow him to be a leader in this circumstances, it, his fame is a distraction. Mm. But nevertheless, this is something that 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 whether he he feels genuinely moved by the cause or whether he thinks this is a this is a good vehicle for a song, this is a good subject matter for a song. Um, but he repurposes an existing track uh, lyrically um, and comes up with "Street Fighting Man," and this is this is sort of in parallel with what. Lennon is doing. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, I know 5% as much about the Stones as I do about the Beatles, and I can blow a bit hot and cold in them, but Street Fighting Man would be one of my favourite Stones mm. tracks. And as you say, it, it's interesting, it begins life as this uh, song called uh, Did Everyone Pay Their Dues, which is a very <laughs> dull, prosaic <laughs> type title, you know? Yeah. And uh, that line is the line, you know, what can a poor boy do? That was originally, did everyone pay their dues? Which yes. is, is kind of um, not very rock and roll in a way, you know? It's not saying much. It's not, it's, it, no, it's not saying much. Yeah, um, uh, that's available well, on YouTube. Yes, what 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 I like about this the, uh, about Street Fighting Man is uh, is it it's sort of the template for what what carries the Stones through the next three or four albums. That sort of scrubbed acoustic guitars, yes, with, with layering on top of it of 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 electric guitars, and um, that's that's the kind of and, and with piano as well, and it's that Beggar's Banquet sound um, that kind of carries them through, and I just that's. I, I love that. That's yeah, they, they really flipped a switch in 68 because you think of 67, mm. you have Sgt. Pepper and then six months later, Satanic Majesties. You know, there's this kind of carbon yeah. copy, uh, Stones in the Shadow type thing that John and Paul would bitch about at the time and later, you know? Constantly, yeah. yeah. that the Stones were kind of copying them. And in 68, you know, Jimmy Miller starts producing them and, you know, they do Honky Tonk Women and they do Street Fighting Man and, and they kind of pull away into the Stones we kind of know today. And yeah. whether Street Fighting Man is cynical or not, it certainly has a great sound. And you could argue that, you know, the Stones, they're not necessarily setting the template for writing a song about revolution, but they are ahead of the curve a little bit in terms of fashioning this song because they write it in March, they record it in April, May. They're, you know, it doesn't really come out till later in the summer. So we don't really know whether it was in the Beatles eyeline eye at all. Yeah. But they are certainly getting better at defining themselves and sticking their I, finger up to the wind and seeing which way it's going. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly that's exactly it. You know, the stones have that harder edge sound, and and that's what sixty eight is all about. You know, you've got Hendrix, you've got Cream, you've got those West Coast bands. There's a shift in the sound of 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 what popular music is, um, what popular music should be doing, and I suppose, uh, and we maybe come on to this when we look at the sort of critical reaction and response, the way that Revolution is received. There's a slight notion at this stage, you know, the Beatles are identified with Sgt. Pepper, 1967, The Summer of Love, All You Need Is Love. It, it's all sort of peace and flowers and looking for jackets in Carnaby Street. And, but 1968 is not about that. It's yeah. completely different. There's been a complete sea change in, in sort of youth culture, if that term existed at the time. Um, the generation gap has suddenly just completely widened. Um, the Beatles, I think, uh, again, this is one of my pet theories is that the Beatles were, were, uh, responsible in a way for, for keeping that gap closed. Yeah. Um, because everybody could like the Beatles, you know, the kids and the grannies and the mums and the dads and the politicians and, uh, could see the benefit, but 1968, all that is, is, is cast aside. And, uh, I, I, perhaps that summer of love is you know just a memory by the time you get to summer of 68 yeah and so they come back from india with a bunch of songs our our our, our beetle friends and uh yeah revolution is one of these songs fashioned up in the hills of india and it's not really you know for a song about revolution you know india is a pretty peaceful place you know yeah um lennon made a comment about this in his Jan Wenner interview in 1970 and he said you know I've been thinking about this up in the hills in India I still had this God will save us all feeling uh, everything's going to be all right I wanted to talk I wanted to say my piece about the revolution but you know everything's going to be okay so he's writing it from that um, uh, that that standpoint that at the end you know he knows times are hard there is a revolution coming but it's going to be all right and it's it's essentially a positive a positive message yeah. um and and so we get to this question or this point in time where it's like well it's it we need a new beetle record we need to to get yeah. recording and you know the 30th of may is when revolution becomes the first song recorded for what eventually becomes the white album but we need to rewind yeah. a little bit because there's a there's a little bit of work uh before that and and may uh, as we have said is busy and what's interesting is they had block booked Abbey Road from the 20th of May onwards, but they don't use yeah. that first week at all. And they're, they're no. due to be in there every day too, till, till midnight. Um, and uh, it gets booked from the end of May to the end of July. Um, but famously, we know what happens first is the Isher demos happen. Yes. Um, uh, you, you wonder why if they had Abbey Road booked, they didn't do the demo, the rehearsals and the demos. Yeah, they um, had it booked that time. It, it's very strange. It, it, in the studio, but instead, you know, they head out to uh, George's house. And um, this is really the first time, I think, that they've done this sort of pre-production work. Um, you know, sometimes they'll go into the studio and they'll sketch something out and they'll do rehearsal and they'll wipe those tapes and then they'll go for a take. But here they're actually sitting around playing these numbers as a, as a block of songs. But really, if you think about it, they had worked so much on the hoof for the previous mm. five and a half years. And it's worth reminding ourselves it's five and a half years since Love Me Do that yeah. uh, they never really probably had more than two or three songs 
ready to go at any point ready in time. Ready to go at any one time. Would have yeah. had whatever it was. How many ended up on the on the the Escher demos tape? Thirty odd songs. Yeah. Um, you know, they they just didn't have them before, so it did make sense to just write down these very um, brief sketches. And uh, I suppose we don't really know we don't really know that the recording order of the Escher demos. Sure, we don't. No, no. I mean, I've always just perhaps naively assumed. It's as they come, as you hear them <laughs> on the tape. But um, we're not sure. Uh, we're, we're not sure, but they're clearly sketching out uh, the, the, the arrangements. And uh, it, it's clear here that John has a very fixed idea of what this song is going to be like. And it, it's it's pretty much all there except for the final, that Chairman Mao yeah. uh, uh, verse. And, you know, the Easter demos are now part of the expanded uh 2018 white album so it's on the three yeah. cd in the full box set version and you know the demo is uh it's infectious you know it, it it's it's great it is i mean you can see you 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 can see the merit in the song straight away i mean this is not something that you think he's going to have to take in which is very much very very often the case with john songs that he takes something in and then you know, Paul sprinkles his fairy dust on it, and it becomes kind of sweeter. Or it, it's, this is this is all there, and it's immediately infectious. It's a pretty simple um, sort of shuffle arrangement. Yeah, um, and something I'll probably touch on again because it, it kind of feels like the first solo Lennon song. You know, you listen to that demo, and it's infectious. It sounds like a different thing. He's not necessarily mm. doing a a Bob Dylan kind of vibe. He's not necessarily doing a Mr. Kite, you know, fun Beatles kind of vibe. Yeah. It's certainly not a love song. Uh, it, it really is uh, him trying to speak as him to get something across, but, but yet I, still, you can still dance to it, you know? Yes. I mean, I think, I think, I think this is, this is what he was sort of saying. This is, he wanted to speak about the war. He was fed up with, uh, the you know the Beatles being constrained, Epstein's no longer around, so there is that sense of freedom. And yes, this this is maybe at that point the most personal song that he's committed, uh, at least the most openly personal. You know, we've we've had songs where he's writing about his own experiences before, but they've been sort of hidden or under arrangements, or they've been you know help has been speeded up to make mm. it a catchy mop top single but here is yeah this is this is maybe the template for what comes later around 1970 plastic Ono band that that sort of feeling and so the demo has john on acoustic guitar and he's singing the others are clapping and occasionally joining in and john uh, double tracks some of his guitar and vocals on the demo as well uh, and so is there something in that uh, in this the official isher demo cd have they tinkered with the the, the revolution demo? they they have, they have. What they've done is they fixed the timing. You know, Lennon sort of famously was sort of wayward in his his sense of time and timekeeping, and you know he would stretch, put in extra bars and extra beats and things like that. But the timing sort of is off. If you if you hear the original tape, and what they've done is they fixed it through uh, sort of digital trickery so yeah. that it is all in the same tempo. Um, I, I'm not sure. I was going to say I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I know exactly how I feel about that. I don't like it. I think, well, <laughs> you, you know, if I if I'm if I'm you'll have missed, to go along with it, Stephen. Your DNA. I, to, I don't like it, but I have to go along with it. Um, uh, it, it it it's you know why do you need to fix this? They were sitting, you know, round a tape recorder in George's living room, presumably, uh, and 
why not just let us hear? No one's expecting this to be studio perfect. Um, well, I, I mean, you told me this and I didn't notice and I went back and I listened to the the official release again and I still don't really notice. So why are they doing it? I don't, I totally understand why you don't like it. And I can understand why it would be something that would not be liked. However, because I'm a cantankerous old man. That's not what I'm saying. That's what I'm implying. <laughs> um, but uh, at the same time, you know, I, I like this notion of what are these boxes trying to do? And this is not Bob Dylan bootleg volume 12. This is the Beatles uh, still trying to entertain Mac Shaw a little bit, you know, put out something that everyone's going to like, including the musos and the casual buyers who might only buy one box set a year. You know, I think. So you're, you're saying that this is all Paul's doing? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And so um, therefore, it's a good idea. <laughs> I, I suppose I suppose it's that tension between um, uh, presenting an historical artifact yes. or a piece of entertainment. And my view is, well, we've got the piece of entertainment in the, the sort of the album itself, the yeah. album itself. Yeah. So, give us the uh, the the unadulterated original. You know, the, but I, I I'm joking about saying this is Paul, but Paul is notorious for doing this in his own box sets. Mm. So he will take a, a song that was recorded in 1972, and before he puts it in the box set, he'll just add a little kind of bass riff, or he'll polish it up, or he'll get it remixed. And I think that's 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 not one thing, and it's not another. It's yeah. it's it's a kind of Frankenstein. But it's like the Stones did it on Sticky Fingers. There's new Lennon vocals on, or new um, Jagger vocals on the Sticky yeah, Fingers box yeah. set from a few years back, isn't it? Which is all I, a bit I don't, strange. I don't, although those are very good, I have to say. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway. That's another, that's for the, uh, whatever the, the Rolling Stones podcast. Stones podcast, yeah. Coming um, soon. So, you know, we're going to get to the big day itself, which is May the 30th, which is the first recording studio day uh, for the White Album, and the song that they're going for is John's Revolution. And, and yeah. John obviously thinks highly of the song, the band think highly of the song. There's this question of, it might be a single. Yeah, might be the new single. Certainly, uh, certainly, certainly John, after the event, would, would, would have said that. Yeah, and I like this notion of that, you know, the first song of the album is is a John song, that it sets the template, and it follows a pattern that... The first song they recorded for a Revolver was Tomorrow Never Knows. The first song they recorded for Sgt. Pepper was Strawberry Fields. And, you know, John comes in and he sort of sets the, is it a roadmap or a template or a vibe? He sort of lays down the 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 card or the yeah. gauntlet for what's uh, what's about to happen. Do you think it's that you think he's insisting on that? Or do you think the others are just sort of saying, well, we've got to indulge, you know, there, there, there's, there's, there is form where you sort of indulge John and let him do his thing. I don't think it's him, indulging. Happy. I think, you know, in deference to Paul, you know, Paul re- recognized, you know, John's greatness and loved. And I don't think anything made Paul happier. I can't think of any instance where Paul undermined a John song, really. Um, you know, and I think he would have been no. more than happy to, you know, and what we'll see is actually it takes a while for Paul to get his feet onto the desk of making the White Album. But yeah. I, I don't think Paul would have done that with any kind of, um, you know, biting his lip or anything. I certainly think, though, that there's stuff happening on that day that is different for all of them, because um, maybe we should talk about the Yoko in the room. 
Yes. Well, you know, they're all there. All the key key members of the Beatles are there. John, Paul, Ringo and Yoko. Yes. There's no George, we don't think. There's no George. He's not prepared <laughs> to indulge uh, John. Uh, but that's, well, that's, a, that's, that's setting ourselves up for the January 69 uh, John, yeah. Paul, Ringo, Yoko session. Whole lot of Yoko, yeah. which we, we all like. Um, but it's, it, it is interesting that, you know, it, it sort of has to be explained to the band as, as Ringo comically says years later, you know, we go home and tell our wives what we did. And John said, well, I'm just going to have her here all the time. And that's, yeah. uh, that's, that's. He, yeah, I mean, John, John, John says this, and this I, I find intriguing is that John said later he had to get permission John had to get permission. Yeah, he from said, oh, uh, well, presumably from the other Beatles. Hmm. I give that a big hum. I don't know yeah, about that. I, I, don't, I don't know about that either. Um, but that's, that's, you know, but here we are, day one, first time back in the studio since uh, mid-February, pre-India. Yoko's there. Yeah. I don't know. She's sitting on an amp. Maybe she's sitting on George's amp. If, if, uh, <laughs> sitting on George's not there. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's a whole new world. And I think, you know, I think that you know, the, they're setting sail on, on Revolution because it is a, a great song, you know. And it's, it's uh, you know, the analogy I've used before, Stephen, is that it's like Stevie Nicks' songs in, in Fleetwood Mac, you know, that... Uh, okay. Uh, that maybe. Lindsay is the overbearing, hyper-talented one, but Stevie is the one that's got the emotional map for what's going on, you know? What's going on. Okay. So so Stevie's we'll, John Lennon and Lindsay is Paul in that we'll, analogy. We'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. <laughs> that's for our third podcast. Yeah. The Thunder Only Happens When It's Raining podcast. Anyway, um, so the, the, you talk about the usual players being there, but the other players are kind of around as well, which is uh, George Martin, uh, Jeff Emmerich, who's starting to get a bit of the, the collie wobbles. Yes, yes. Um, one of the, one of the sources of one of the books that I read, doing a bit of research uh, for this, is his Here, There, and Everywhere book. And I think I've made my feelings clear previously about this book. It's I, I it's so biased against George in particular, so dismissive of Ringo that I, I, I sort of have lost faith in his objectivity. But he does give a very detailed um, description of this first day and he re- he does record the fact that he says paul seemed unusually subdued that night perhaps he was annoyed that john was dominating the proceedings so much um m- my own take on that might be that yoko was there yeah because that's uh, uh, uh that that's a new uh factor and just changes the dynamic yeah um emmerich also r- recounts an argument that he had with with John, where John is, is he asked John to turn his guitar down or points out that it's sort of, uh, you know, it's distorting. And there's a bit of a set two here about this. Uh, Emmerich says George Martin would not go down onto the studio floor and speak to Lennon about this, but sent him down. Yeah. And and Lennon was saying, no, I want this to be overdriven. Now, this is an acoustic guitar he's playing, but he's he's got everything turned up. Um, and Emmerich then has to go and fix to get that distorted sound. Yeah. Um, and he said he uses the same technique as he did uh, by pushing a preamp up that he did on the vocal for I Am The Wall. I've, um, I've uh, just as a side point, years ago, I used to play around with a little four track tape machine and I did mm. not have an electric guitar at the time. And it is a fun thing to do where you just totally overload your tape machine to yeah. make your electric sound like an yeah. acoustic. It's, uh, and it's certainly, uh, totally blasts out. Well, yeah. again, the, 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 the other parallel is this is what the Stones are doing. Yeah. 
you know, somewhere far away in another part of town, they are uh, doing the same thing with acoustic guitars and, and, and little toy drum drum kits setting up the bedrock for Street Fighting Man. So it's interesting that they're both working in a similar fashion. And as, as a side point, it's also interesting, Chris Thomas is also there as George Martin's assistant. That's his first day on the job. Mm. He's 21 yeah. years old. And Chris Thomas goes on to, well, he's working in the Beatle universe in, in, in these last few years, but he goes on to you know work with the Sex Pistols and a whole bunch of people and produce Back to the Egg, which... Yeah is uh, in 1979. So he's learning the, the skill of producing, and that's a pretty amazing f- first Inter- session. First, first, yeah. first, uh, first uh, Beatles session. So they go through a number of uh, recordings of the song on May 30th. And as we said, you know, George doesn't seem to be there. And it's John, Paul and Ringo. And it's John on acoustic, Ringo on drums, obviously, Paul on a on a piano. Piano, yeah. And uh, they, they work up to 18 takes. And again, what we were saying a few minutes ago, this is kind of Plastic Ono band stuff, really. It's just, uh, you know, a tight trio getting into the groove, the, the very core nugget yeah. of the song in a way. Yeah, sort of this, this stripped back, uh, you know, acoustic guitar, distorted. It's very like Plastic Ono Band. Yeah. And we're lucky now that we get to hear the final take, which is take 18, mm. which is now the opening track of the first disc of studio outtakes on the, the Beatles yeah. White yeah. album uh, box set. And if you're coming to, because it's it's that take 18 that we probably need to, to focus in on, because that's what becomes not only Revolution 1, but it mm-hmm. also gets hived off in part to form Revolution 9. Yes. Um, and at this point, Revolution 1 is actually just called Revolution because yeah. we don't... It's all there is. Well, it's all there is. And that's really interesting as well, that it's the 30th of May, they're bringing in this song. And, you know, as a self-contained song, you can hear on the demo, it's a great song. But it's actually going to become three totally different things and that's mm. not obvious on day one that's not part of the plan at all no, no and it's echoes of the whole strawberry fields forever situation where john brings in a new song and they're cutting version after version of it and it turns into different things and they're all worthy things ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yes, yes. I mean, this, this, this idea of them just jamming at the end of a particular take, um, they've never, I think, before done anything with that. 
Um, you know, they'll do it again in, in, in the future. So the early takes of something have John vamping away on the piano, um, a rather sort of odd uh, coda to that song that he then takes and uses on Plastic Ono Band. Um, but, but yes, they can have, it, 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 it does intrigue me as to whether or not John had the idea that this entire sort of 10 minute take would would be the finished um, article because Yoko is present. She just happens to have a tape uh, with her that she plays. Um, so what's she doing? She has a tape recorder in her hands or something, isn't it? And she's, yeah, she, she's playing she, loops of speech or something. Yeah, she seems to have come in with presumably a, a, a tape that she has made up of, of loops and recitations and sound effects and things like that. And certainly Mark Lewison says, uh, you know, a take 14, you suddenly get the first appearance of this tape playing in the background. Hmm. So there's this notion of random sounds or, now this is something that they've done on Tomorrow Never yeah. Knows, obviously themselves where like they the had constructed. The radio around well, yeah. yeah, so she's in there, she's got a tape and this starts to be heard. Yeah. Um, so the take 18, uh, you get these coming again. Paul is vamping on the piano. He starts doing the shooby doo wop vocals. Yep. You get that that phrase, uh, maybe if you become naked. Yes. Which then crops up. So this makes it that phrase is making its first appearance on this tape that Yoko is is bringing into and, the and studio. And so it's interesting because if you're listening to it, you might think, oh, it's just Yoko talking in the background, but it's not. It's Yoko manipulating a tape yes. of yeah. her talking. And the tape is going into its own microphone, basically. Yes, so yes. That's so just being picked it, it, up by some microphone. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the jam is sort of continuing over the top of that and becomes this other thing. And, uh, you know, you, you wonder, did did she have, was this prearranged? Uh, did John sit down and say, hey, guys, you know, Yoko's got this tape she's going to play, or did this just happen spontaneously? Uh, it, that, that, I mean, that's the fly on the wall yeah. situation. You, you'd like to see how that developed and what. And this final take 18, uh, if you actually go to the Lewis and Sessions book, he sort of says that take 18 is different. It's not like they did 17 takes like this. No. This take 18 has, you know, the first three to four minutes of song and then this yeah. back end six minutes of very, very different vamping. And as I said, we can hear it on the box set now or on your streaming services of choice. And what's interesting is uh, that John is either consciously or subconsciously, he's vocalizing in a way that you could say is Yoko-like, you know, where he's trying to get through, you know, Uh, get kind of a scream or a noise or sort of, you know, that kind of uulating that uh, Yoko sometimes is known for or mocked for. And he's he's reaching up into that with the groans and the squawks and all the yes, rest. Yes, yes. So this is this is this is so the first. This is their first day back. This is their first uh, uh, song that they're they're recording, and suddenly they're off in this completely different direction. Yoko's right in the middle, and she's participating, uh, not just sort of you know passively, on, passively, or yeah. you know they brought people in before to do backing vocals or people who've been in the studio, but suddenly she is actively participating and driving or steering this song in a particular yeah. um, direction. There's I mean, that must influence have, that, there, yeah. Yeah, that must have been, I mean, that must have been quite a shock. And you listen to that 10-minute take 18 and you kind of get this feeling, 
you know, once you get into minute five and minute six that, you know, everyone's like, oh, this is a good idea. Whatever's happening, yes. this this yes. hasn't happened before. Let's keep doing this. And it's, 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 you know, the, uh, Ringo, you know, he is the, <laughs> he is the tick or he, what is it? Yeah. He says, I am he, the click. Am the yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ringo is being the click and it's just, he's keeping it locked down. And again, it's just three instruments. Although on that take 18, you hear a bit of an organ noise at the end. I'm not sure where that's coming from. And, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's great. It's organized chaos, but it's capturing a moment. It is, as I say, they must. They, they, it must have been shocking. Uh, I imagine that it heads off in that direction. But, but to everyone's credit, they stick with it. They kind of grab, grab it, and and they they go with it. And you know, no one, I suppose, any any of them at any time could just have said, right, that's it, or called a halt. But they do. They could, you, obviously there is something there. I have to say, I I do really enjoy uh, Take Eighteen. I do yeah. really like. Yeah, John sounds happy. Get. He sounds happy yeah. as he gets through it. And uh, but this is the bedrock for what becomes Revolution One, Revolution Nine, as we said. And when you listen to the the the, the take eighteen, especially when John is singing the right, 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 that we know later on yeah. from uh, yeah. Revolution Nine, it's really striking to hear it in context. And I think it makes, as we'll talk about later on, it gives Revolution Nine almost makes a lot more sense when you hear it in this it, 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 it does i mean it really really does uh revolution nine if you hear that out of context it's just a crazy chaotic thing but here you can actually see the foundation that it's built on and just to go back to that point where you're saying john sounds happy perhaps that's what paul is responding to yeah. you know because he's vamping away on the piano and then he starts the kind of 50s shooby doo wop Yep. backing vocal. So he's 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 actively participating and entering into the spirit of the thing. But it's great because that kind of moment where Paul is doing shooby doo up, you know, sometimes Paul gets, you know, knocked down for uh, you know, doing kind of cheesy things, honey pie and all that kind of stuff. You gave me the answer and all the rest. But you you know, it takes a moment like that in a John song and that John will you know, incorporated into the song, and that's that's where it all mm. works brilliantly. And yes. uh, I, I can't imagine Paul wasn't anything but happy working on that uh, that session I, I think that I think that does come across yeah. um, and it's interesting that you know Emmerich says Paul was very subdued but he doesn't really um, uh, uh, sort of deal with the sort of apparent joy or enthusiasm that, that then emerges yeah. but, he, but he's in a recording to... studio making music so listen yeah. it's better than being in an Apple meeting for, for yeah so it's a long day. It's a roughly a 12-hour session. The, the official papers say 2.30 p.m. to 2.40 a.m. doing um, Revolution. And then they are back in studio the next day, Friday, the 31st of May. Again, they've blocked booked the studio from 2.30 to midnight uh, through to the end of July. They're back in on Friday, the 31st of May. Um, and uh, George is in tow as well. But John and Yoko were busy that morning. They were house hunting, yes, is that right? they were out house hunting. So at one point... Um, you know, I can't repeat the language, but uh, John said he would be prepared to live in a tent. Uh, oh gosh! If if he was with Yoko, but uh, then clearly decided, well, perhaps a house would be better. <laughs> a very large, um, so house. very large house. So this is there out earlier in the day with Pete Shot and looking uh, for a house, which ultimately would lead them to. Uh, Tittenhurst. Yeah, the famous Tittenhurst. Um, And May 31st, the following day, they're in the smaller Studio 3 and uh, John is working on vocals. Um, Paul is putting on a bass and Paul and George are putting on the official kind of shooby-doo-wop 
backing vocals. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you know, they are building on this take 18. Yes, and, and uh, the, the, the interesting point here is about the lyrics. So they're adding, uh, you know, John is doing the lead vocals and he's still refining the lyric. Yes. Uh, so uh, there's a, an engineer, Alan Brown, who was there and he, he was saying, you know, he was in the control room of Studio 3 and then suddenly, uh, you know, in the in the darkness of the studio, going over and over the lines of the song is John Lennon. He said he's 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 going through the song and every time he's changing a word or two um, about you can count me out, you can count me in. So that's he's still at this point uh, clearly has decided Oh, count me out, count me in. He he hasn't come to a, a, a definitive response. But he is going to, we, we know which way the, he, he comes down, but that's that's with the next uh, vocal yeah. session, I think, where he, where he makes that one. So that's Friday the 31st of May. And then they have a few days off and they're back in studio on Tuesday uh, the 4th of June. And uh, they are still working on the first song from the White Album, which is Revolution, which is still called Revolution, it's Revolution yep. 1. Uh, and this is another kind of crazy day in EMI yes. Studio 3. Yes. It's, it's, their days are quite packed. They are. And I mean, before we actually get into the studio, if I can mention, this is the day that supposedly John and Paul earlier in the day meet Italian film director Franco Zeffirelli. Yes, and this is for this is on Paul's behalf or something, isn't it? Yes, and I'm not quite sure why John would be be there, but supposedly well, Franco Yoko there, maybe I suppose she was. Well, well, maybe she was. Yeah, she. Well, Zeffirelli supposedly offers Paul the role of Romeo. Of course, <laughs> perhaps Yoko was going to be uh, Juliet. Unlikely. Uh, um, <laughs> in, in in Romeo and Juliet, which is was a hugely successful film by Zeffirelli, comes out later in 1968. Um, and Paul talks about this, and the actress who ultimately played uh, Juliet, Olivia Hussey, has talked about this. And, um, uh, you know, she, she describes being out at a nightclub with Paul and Paul squaring her around the night spots of, uh, of London. And Paul has talked about this as well, but he very diplomatically uh, says, oh, yes, I, I, I was out with Olivia Hussey. This is long before I met uh, Linda. Well, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't add up. A good no. lawyer would shoot holes in that. Well, I think he's just being diplomatic. Diplomatic. Uh, there. But um, can I give you my top trivia points? Yes, go on. The, this is about the, the Romeo and Juliet film. Yes, the, okay, actor, who, the, oh. the actor who did get... Uh, oh, you'd love these trivia points. I love points. the trivia. There's a monkey's reference. You'll, yeah. you'll enjoy that. Uh, the actor who got the part was Leonard Whiting, and he was most famous for having replaced Davy Jones in the cast of Oliver. Uh, which allowed Davy and the rest of the cast to go off to Broadway and appear on the Ed Sullivan show at the same time as the Beatles. Yes, Davy Jones from the Monkees was on that first Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles. It's strange but true. So um, yeah, and he uh, did he have any other uh, significant career? Do we know oh, him? Oh, I see where you're going. He, he no, I mean as an actor, no, but he he sang. Uh, lead vocals on a song called The Raven, which I don't know, Yes, uh, on uh, the first Alan Parsons project. The Alan Parsons project, yes. I, I can say, I can say I have knowing, never knowingly heard a song by the Alan Parsons project. Uh, another side point, I would say I, I went through a streaming uh, overview of Alan Parsons project and the album that's worth getting is iRobot. That's a top record. Okay. Uh, I never really plugged into the rest of them, but iRobot is a, is a, 
synthesizer tastic um, uh, album of madness. Um, so yeah, so but, but they are in the studio working on more uh, things to do with uh, revolution, and I may be inspired by Yoko being there. Paul brings someone to the studio. Yes, Paul brings his new girlfriend, Francie Schwartz, to the Francie studio. Schwartz. Now, she's one of these names that pops up in yeah. Beatle lore. She's a, she, there's a very small window where she appears. It's this kind of middle of, right in, bang splat in the middle of 68. Yes, so there's a lot going on in Paul's love life in uh, in 68. But she she seems to have been, or she she would say she was a very serious girlfriend. Mm. Um, uh, she began her relationship with Paul, she says, at the same time that he was engaged to Jane Asher. Yeah. And Jane discovering Paul and Francie Schwartz together was really the cause of the end of that um, relationship, that engagement. Francie Schwartz had gone to London to pitch one of her scripts to Apple, supposedly. Um, and then Paul took her back to his place to show her his, his Magritte. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to get some Magritte's. Um, but she, yeah, she. So she is around all through the summer. Um, she is there, living effectively in Cavendish Avenue with Paul at the time that John and Yoko move in. Yeah, uh, she is present on in July on the Mad Day Out, um, where they have the that very famous sort of photo session. She chooses the locations, doesn't she? Or she's involved? Yeah, in yeah some she's of the involved. Locations. She's involved in that. She takes some pictures. Uh, you know, I always imagine that that is sort of Don McCullen and Tom Murray and the Beatles, but there's a whole entourage there. Mm. Yoko's there, Francie Schwartz is there. So there's, there's a sense at this stage, I think, that Paul is sort of elevating her to the same status as Yoko, you know? Yeah. She's, she's my girlfriend, so I'm going to bring her. Uh, she wrote a book. Have you read that book? I, of course, have not read the book. Uh, the book is called Body Count. Okay. Uh, it was written in 1972. It mm -hmm. is a truly awful book. Why is it awful? It's just, uh, it's the most overwritten, flowery prose. And let me tell you, there is no detail of their relationship that she's not prepared um, uh, to elaborate on. Oh, dear. So mm. um, it's a very, very difficult book to find. And I can only imagine that Paul bought and burned <laughs> every copy he could get his hands on. Do we it, it's, yeah. I do not recommend it. I have a copy of it on PDF that somebody very <laughs> kindly sent me. A listener, a listener on this podcast sent me the book. Um, oh gosh, it's a terrible, terrible book. And she also, this. What's interesting about the whole White Album thing is there's very little uh, documentary evidence of what's going on, but there is a bit of film footage of the Blackbird recording, and she's in that somewhere, isn't she? She's not going she, in the background. She, she is, she is. Um, so you can see her on that promotional film uh she sings supposedly does sing some backing vocals on that come through on on takes of revolution revolution nine yeah. um so suddenly suddenly but you know everyone's in the studio patty harrison is singing on birthday yeah. yoko's there i think maureen is singing backing vocals so suddenly it's maybe you know john bring yoko has made it okay to, to to bring the the wives in by the way do we know where francie schwartz is today no no, I don't. I don't know. And um, you know, hanging out with Jimmy Nickel, probably, probably hanging out with Jimmy Nickel. I honestly know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, so they, someone, someone will know. Someone, someone will tell us. Tell us. Maybe she's listening. Hi there. Um, so on this day in the studio, uh, again, full tilt, June fourth, they're working on Revolution, and 
what they do is they start adding to this take 18 that they've done uh, the previous week. And this gets called take 20. Yes. This is actually a bootleg that you can look up on uh, YouTube and the like. And uh, it's, it's interesting because what, again, John knows he's doing something, but he's not sure what he's doing. And there's lots of things going on. First of all, he's redoing his vocal. Yes. And this is famously, there's a, there's a picture in um, uh, Lewis and studio sessions book. He wants, he always wanting his vocal to sound different. He decides he's going to lie flat on his back and sing <laughs> into a microphone suspended above his head. Cause you know, why not? Why not? And why not? Uh, so he puts down his lead vocal for, um, for revolution. So I think this is where he puts down, you can count me out, count me in. That's where, yes, this arrives at this point. Yeah. And it's important for the record, your honor, that the first finalized version of the revolution slash revolution one lyric is when you talk about destruction, don't you know, you can count me out in it's the yes. first one he records, but that's yes. important later on because that's not yeah. the first one that people hear. And, yeah. uh, they're also gathering around the mic and what are they doing? They're doing tape loops and backing vocals and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yes. It's, it, it, it reminds me of some of the descriptions you get of, you know, the Beach Boys sessions for Smile, where people yeah. are kind of crunching gravel and, and <laughs> setting off fire alarms and crunching vegetables and just, it's just, just crazy stuff going on. And, um, uh, this is the, this is the take, uh, that begins with John saying, take your knickers off and let's go. In one of his sort of comedy goon voices, yeah. Uh, this first, I hadn't heard this until maybe two or three years ago, and it suddenly appeared on YouTube. I think was the first, hmm. and it's fantastic. I love this take, uh, yeah. this mix. It's uh, yeah. You wonder maybe it maybe it escaped at the time of the assembly for the 2018 box. It's not on the 2018 box, it's, obviously. It's it's a source of great irritation to me. There are many things irritate me, but <laughs> but this irritates me. Well, I I think I can understand why. I think you know I I think they probably came down to a choice between the original unadorned take 18 or this kind of overdub remix take 20. And I think take 18 is better to hear it in its skeletal form. Take 20 is you know, is a, is a different version of the same thing. So I don't think they could have put both on again. They're not doing the Bob Dylan. Let's include everything for historical accuracy type. Situation. Yeah. But why, why, why could they not put, uh, you know, you've got the Isha demo. I know you've, you've got an early take, you've got 18, you've got 20, and then you've got the yeah. sort of finished songs. I mean, it, it, what I'm, what I'm interested in, and this is probably the song that shows it more than any, any other is that evolution. Yes. of the sign, the sign picture and, and that sort of hiving off. And uh, I, I look forward to the 60th anniversary box <laughs> set where uh, all of these, including Take 20, will, will appear. Yeah, yeah. The, the, it's, they're doing vocals, uh, backing vocals. They're doing tape loops again. There's part of it that sounds a bit, you know, a bit rep- repetitive in terms of there's a bit of a Tomorrow Never Knows vibe going on. Yeah. There's two very sort of loud uh, tape loops that come in and out of it that sound very much alike. The Beatles going, ah, and a big kind of guitar note. Yeah. And it's kind of got a screeching thing that reminded me a bit like uh, Armenia City in the Sky from the Who Sell Out, you know? That oh, yes, kind of, yes, yes, yes. It's yes. kind of got that kind of dronal noise that just kind of fades in and out over and over again. So... I think I could see why they'd get to the end of the recording session and go, eh, you know, this isn't... Maybe not. Too this, much. This, yeah, this hasn't cracked a nut. Like, we, when we did take 18, we, we were onto something new. This isn't 
what to do next with this. I could see why they might think that. But it's around about this point that what does happen is that this Revolution 1 recording gets hived off into yes. Revolution 1 and Revolution 9. Yes. And so this back end, this last six minutes of this take gets taken away. And it's, uh, you know, that's Tuesday the 4th of June, they're doing all these tape loops. Wednesday the 5th of June, they work on Don't Pass Me By. And it's on uh, Thursday the 6th of June that they start to assemble a different thing, which is Revolution 9. And we're going to focus on Revolution 9 in part two of this revolution yeah. talk. Um, but that's where this division happens after this 4th of June session. So if we stay on the Revolution 1 track for a moment, yeah. uh, this kind of gets you know, put aside for a few weeks. They, they start to arrange stuff. The next focused session on that is June 21st. That's right. And that's, that's right. just John and George at this point, isn't it? This is this is John uh, and George sort of putting the finishing touches. So Paul, Paul is in America at yeah. this point uh, at the Beverly Hills Hilton uh, addressing the Capitol Sales Convention. Um, so he's, he's effectively over there announcing that all of the uh, Apple records will be distributed by Capital. He's playing a little promotional tape. Um, the Blackbird session that you talked about earlier, he, he plays that film yeah. and is generally sort of glad handing and doing the PR stuff. John and George are back in the studio um, over, overdubbing brass. So there's a, that sort of brass arrangement, two yep. trumpets, four trombones. George Martin has written uh, the, the score there. Uh, they make two attempts at that and they turn take 20 effectively into take 22 mm. onto which George plays his uh, lead guitar. Electric guitar riff at the start. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that lead electric guitar riff, you know, whether that's the seed that leads us to the re-recording of Revolution, yes, yes, it certainly yes. would seem to be the stepping stone, that the noise. That's kind of, you know, you can see the DNA that gets you from that point to, to the re-recording of. That's the, the fascinating thing to me about this song in particular is you can, you can, it's that exactly it. It's that DNA. So mm. you, you, you've got these various strands and, and the other intriguing thing is, is the choices they make. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not sure in any of the re-releases, certainly, you know, anthology and the box sets that you could ever say, they didn't make the right choice. Yes. Um, in terms of, of the take or the arrangement or the the part. But this is the song that sort of spawns the most uh, uh, diverse um, sort of iterations. Yes. And so this is on June the 21st, and they probably think that they're finished the song. They, they end the session by doing a load of uh, stereo mixes for mm. it, just John and George. And it, yeah. what's interesting at this point is that, you know, this is June 21st. It started on May 30th. The only song that Paul has put down in this stage is Blackbird, which he puts down. Yes. Yes. There's, there's one session where John is in the room on the 11th of June, where he just goes over and over and over again, trying to nail down Blackbird, which is one of the more fun bootleg things you can listen to is all 30 odd takes of Blackbird. <laughs> well, it is. But and John making suggestions from the control room that Paul yeah. is studiously ignoring. But Paul still hasn't done a band recording no, for no. the White Album. We're almost a month into recording. It's really interesting. And so on the 21st of June, they think they do these stereo mixes. They believe that they're finished. There's a little bit of Revolution 9 work going on in the background as well. Uh, and then, you know, they're out of the studio for the whole weekend. But there's yeah. an interesting 
crazy thing that happens over the weekend. Is yes. Yeah, so bear in mind uh, of these various stereo mixes made on the twenty first, John must have taken an acetate of this yeah. home. So on on the twenty second, which is the Saturday, John and Yoko fly from Luton to Shannon in Ireland um, by jet, and then they take a helicopter to the island of Dornish. Um, Somewhere in the west, I believe. West coast of Ireland, yes, wherever um, that is. <laughs> this is uh, that's uh, an in joke. This is uh, a <laughs> uh, this is an island that John had bought in May 1967 um, for 1,500 pounds. Um, I I always thought this was just one of his crazy acid filled uh, fueled um, notions. Wouldn't it be nice to have an island somewhere? Uh, and I wasn't sure what he was actually going to do with it. But I, I was reading um, that chip. Mattinger book, uh, mm. Lenonology, and he says that he actually had commissioned a firm of architects, Hildebrand and Glicker architects, to uh, design uh, an absolute state-of-the-art uh, recording facility. <laughs> so as far away from the rest of Europe as you can get yeah. without being in America, um, that's the place to build a recording studio. And it was going to be called Irish Mythical Studios. Right. There you go. Um, but, but it, it, anyway. it is odd, though, that, you know, he has to summon the architects and summon the design as if the studio is going to make the stuff. If you just compare that to Paul going up to Mull of Kintyre. Yes, yes. Where it's just like, actually. Here's a barn. Here's a barn. Here's a tape recorder. Let's see, let's see what we can get on with. It's it's curious it's 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 it, you wonder did he really have in mind you know something like the apple studio that third parties would come and use it and i think i don't know i, maybe, I think maybe it was just an acid fueled notion. yeah but, but also you know if, if you want to get uh, deep and personal you know we all sort of make deals with ourselves in our head mm. that oh if i could just do these things then that'd be right and yeah. happy and i could i could you know everything would be okay uh and so there might have been a bit of that going on you know just well this was this was may 67 was when he bought the island so i suppose yeah. that was right in the middle of uh just before pepper and um mm. but i'm sure it was a they, tax dodge anyway yeah could have been could have been they mm. get they get to the island yes he has the acetate in his hand and he realizes he doesn't have a record player <laughs> So doing what any self-respecting millionaire rock star would do, he he sends the helicopter back to Westport uh, with uh, Ronan O'Reilly. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Ronan O'Reilly, yeah. Who was? He was the founder of Radio Caroline, wasn't he? Yeah. Ra yeah. And he only yeah. died earlier in 2020. Yeah. So, so John, Yoko and Pete Shotton stay on the island and Ronan heads back to Westport with the helicopter to look for a battery-powered turntable, which mm. I'm not sure in Westport in 1968 that would yeah. be a particularly common. I don't but think he, so. But he must have found it because the helicopter gets back to the island and John has talked about, oh, we played the, the acetate on the island and it was just, it was glorious and it was so magical. In the interim, a storm has blown up and they are, they, they need to take shelter. So fortunately, John has flown a caravan <laughs> from the garden in Kenwood to the island. And this is Julian's psychedelic Sergeant Pepper caravan. So, you know, Julian obviously doesn't need it anymore. And uh, it, it, it is on the island. And then they all fly off to the Great Southern Hotel <laughs> uh, at the end of the day. Um, 
And yeah, they're hanging out with a, uh, uh, this is a, the Greystone Hotel in Mulrani in, in, in the west of Ireland. And uh, it's, it's uh, they're, they're hanging out with a, there's a there's a bunch. Do they play the record, we think, to the people there? No, or we yeah. don't really know. What seems to happen is they, they, they arrive on the evening of the 22nd and, you know, go straight to bed. They get up the next day, go for a visit to Ackle Island. And then when they come back, the hotel has very kindly organized a special Irish concert uh, <laughs> compared by... Tony Chambers, yes, uh, the Malloy brothers, uh, Dominic Grady, Mrs. Larry <laughs> McGovern, and Peggy Jennings, who is the hotel receptionist. They all get up and do a turn. This is fantastic. Now, I've I've spoken to my source, my uh, yes. the, the Tony Chambers band uh, were an act in the um, in the in the region at the time. They are apparently represented in the 1980s Irish film The Ballroom of Romance, which talks okay. about the Irish show band circuit of the 1960s. And the Malloy brothers were an act out of Mayo in Ireland, who were still touring up until the 21st century. So, that's so. Information I got from my dad. Thank you. There you go. Well, it all it all sounds it all sounds very quaint, if I can say that. <laughs> yeah, and no, then, it does. And then and then suddenly, uh, John reciprocates this generosity by cranking the volume up and playing uh, Revolution. Yeah. Um, so that must have been quite some end to the evening. It's quite interesting. The ballroom circuit in Ireland in the 1960s, in as a 20-second synopsis, was a, an alcohol-free circuit of cover version bands that would tour around Ireland uh, and play cover versions of UK and American hits, with some original material, uh, to crowds of about 2,000 who would jump up and down and dance, mainly in church halls and in hotel function rooms and it was a very lucrative circuit uh, at the time and it's just interesting to think that a beetle parachuted into all of this and said that's very interesting just press pause on the hucklebuck there for a second here's revolution burn it all let's go and then it's 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 out of there it's insane i mean it's absolutely nuts yeah i I didn't Um, it is, but, it's extraordinary to find that out but the good news is that the great southern hotel has the john lennon suite Oh, um, I don't know what the room rates are, but uh, you can get there on the 440 uh, bus route from Westport or the 52 bus air and gold liner. I think we're getting to a level of detail in this podcast that people just don't <laughs> want. People will want to go and see. Uh, it, it might be cheaper this... than the Montreal Hilton. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. Anyway, the, the upside of this is after their long weekend away is that they come back in on June 25th, scrap those stereo mixes and do another set. So obviously the, the maybe it was uh, uh, Tony Chambers said, John, you need to pan yeah. that bass a little bit better. Yeah. But the, but, but, but the really fantastic thing is that these are the only people who've heard that who've heard this mix that is true so That's... this is an absolutely unique mix that this acid where is that acetate now i mean uh, you know they break they, they, they disappear they yeah. wear out so so that that these are the only people that have heard that mix that's a fantastic thing all joking aside that would be a fantastic claim to fame so we're here uh, almost a month in after recording. It's it's June twenty fifth. They they mix off uh, Revolution one. Uh, Revolution nine is is coming into play. Uh, but this is where we might need to take a break because we're going to look at the rest of Revolution um, in uh, part two of this podcast because we still have to talk about Revolution nine, the Revolution B side, and what it all means once it hits the streets. I think that's a, a good place to leave it, don't you think so? I think so, and we've secured our sponsorship from the Irish Tourist Board. So, <laughs> Yes, get to the Great Southern in Mulrani. Um, so that's what we'll be talking about next week on the second half of our podcast discussion about the Beatles song, 
revolution. Thank you very much again for listening to us. We're available to get in touch with in all the usual places on Twitter at BeatlesPod, uh, on the private Twitter or private Facebook group uh, that Stephen is the moderator of. Uh, so let him, he'll let you in there. And um, uh, wherever you download your podcasts, if you feel like leaving us a nice review, that's always appreciated. So thank you very much. But until the next time, I'm Jason Carty. I'm Stephen Cockcroft. And this has been Nothing Is Real. Thank you for listening. Nothing Is Real is powered by Acast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.